Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Okay, let me catch up some of you that may have missed a week or two in transition because sometimes life happens and you can't always be here on Wednesdays. Hopefully you're uh, picking up the church app for your phone or your, uh, your iPad or tablet, whichever you use. If you pull up the app, the classes, there's a special button for classes. You can uh, listen to the teaching, catch yourself up, fill in notes, uh, use it to help yourself fall asleep, whatever works. All right, week one, we talked about the creation account, what did it teach us about God? In week two, we looked at what did the creation account teach us about Jesus? My premise is that all theology is found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Everything we need to know about our relationship with God, with ourselves, and with Jesus can be found in those 11 chapters, and everything else is extrapolated on as we go through the other passages of scriptures, whether it's the Proverbs, or the Psalms, or the Prophets, or the Law, all of them give us a foreshadowing of what God would do in Jesus. Last week, we talked about what's revealed about us, about mankind in creation. And it's really important for us to be able to understand this fourth piece about what is sin. We need to remember that if we, ha- we have to go back and remind ourselves from last week's teaching, what did God create us to be? So you can open your notes for this. This is an open book quiz. Michael gets away with this all the time because you like him a lot more than you like me, and you, you answer his questions. So if you have your notes, I'm going to make it easy for you to like me tonight. First thing is, there were six things I told you that God created man. There were characteristics or attributes of mankind from the very beginning. What was one of those? Pardon? Not those, not the four Ds, but there was a list of... Natural, created being, came from the source of earth. What's the second? Spiritual. Third? Practical. What did that mean? Yeah, that we were created to work. Work wasn't a punishment. Work is a blessing. What was the fourth principle or characteristic? Pardon? Rational. And that, how did we demonstrate that God created us different than the other animals? Animals don't name each other. Mankind names one another. That he was given responsibility and his dominion showed in labeling and some few other things. What's the next one? Moral. How did we justify that man was created a moral creature? He was told don't. And he was able to obey don't. He was told do. And he was able to obey do. There's a right and a wrong. You take any child in the age of one years of age and you put a cookie on a plate, you tell that child not to eat that cookie. When that child goes for that cookie, and they will, when you look at them having disobeyed you, how do they respond naturally? Horror, fear, or that that natural innate ability to lie. I'll never forget when our oldest was about one or two and and we did the test with him. We put something right in front of him. My, my father always had that tough, tough man persona where I'm not moving it. When I was a little kid, my, it's kind of funny that I remember this now. If you lived in the 70s as a kid, everyone had ashtrays all over their houses even though you didn't smoke. Do you, am I the only one who had that experience? Well, I found out the reason we had a lot of our ashtrays is because my dad used to smoke. And so my mom said, I said, well, what made dad quit smoking cigarettes? And she said, uh, my brother Scott reached out and grabbed the lid end of one and burned his hand. My mom looked at my dad and said, you're not smoking in this house. My dad said, I'm too lazy to go outside, so he quit. <laughs> that explains a lot of how I behave. <laughs> it's like, I like it, but I don't like it that much. So anyway, uh, I remember my dad being a person like they had this big, like an asteroid. It would have killed me if it had landed on me. And I remember, I remember this from a very young age, like three or four maybe, pulling that ashtray toward me. And my dad said, leave it alone. And my mom started to put it up by the fireplace. And I remember Dale Christian saying these words. I'm not moving it. He's going to leave it alone. And that was the law. And I remember him walking into the kitchen and grabbing that ashtray. And he came out of the kitchen and I had it off the table. And he looked right at me and I let it go and it landed on my foot and it hurt. And he laughed and that was the end of that story. (laughs) How did I know to respond so negatively when my dad saw me? Because I'm a moral creature. 
I know right and wrong. I know how to respond. And so because of that, it's very, very important. What's the last one? Social. Social. Okay, and we get that. No explanation needed. The reason I wanted to review those six principles is for this purpose. If you know what you were in paradise, in perfection, when we study what sin does, a good independent study for your own would be to look at how sin affected all six one of those attributes of being made in God's image. Because what you find is sin infected every one of those. All right, off we go. The end of chapter two, just look at that if your Bible's open. Look at the last verse of chapter two and just as you ponder it, what's it telling you? They were what? Okay, (laughs) that's kind of funny. I made myself laugh. Probably the guys picked out one part of that and the girls picked out another, okay? (laughs) Maybe not. There's two things. They were naked, but they were not ashamed. Everything was good. Everything was natural. There was none of this guilt. There was none of this shame. There was no perversion. It was paradise. Which, if you take the definition of what is good and you translate it to uh, to Revelation 21 and 22, what you're going to conclude in that is he's going to restore all that, all that evil has turned rotten. God is going to restore back to its beauty. Everything is going to be restored back. He's going to make everything that's wrong right. That's the promise of revelation in the new kingdom. So what I wanted you to see is at the end of Genesis 2, before we transition in, everything was good. And then through one rebellious act. Now, if we did an essay uh, quiz here, If this were one of my college classes, I would say, okay, the essay question is, what was the rebellious act? And my intention would be to correct the false assumption that the act was eating the fruit. That's the easiest answer. That's on face. They were told not to eat the fruit. Why why is it always depicted as an apple? Nobody knows. But we were all raised to say that Eve bit the what? Could have been a watermelon, couldn't it? Could have been a pineapple. She really wanted it. That would have been rougher. If God would have said be a pineapple, we'd probably still be in paradise because we're too lazy. But for some reason, it's identified as an apple, and I'm not sure why. But eating the fruit seems to be what she did. But what's the underlying issue with eating the fruit? Disobedience. Disobedience. And why do we disobey? We wanted it. Okay, (laughs) because we wanted it. We have free will. That sets up from last week. We don't what? We don't trust God. And I think there might be the depth of the answer. When your mother told you not to eat that cookie, what was your thought about your mother? How dare she? She doesn't know how good it is. She doesn't love me. Dad's not home. She'll never feed me again. Is, I'm the only one who did that? Your mind begins to spiral toward this what? If I don't take care of me, who will? So we have school teachers in the room. They'll tell you that they tell their students not to run in the hallway. And they cotton pick and know the minute they go back in their classroom to get that pencil, they got to race down the hallway. Why? Because that teacher doesn't know what's good for me. I do. The answer is not what was the sin. I ate the fruit. It was that I didn't trust that what God told me was good for me is good and what God's told me is bad is bad. Now, if we have that understanding of what motivates us to sin, does it not explain every sin you and I have ever committed personally? Why do we rebel against God? Because he doesn't really know or he doesn't really love me or he just doesn't want me to enjoy myself. So we begin. The first point tonight. Sin begins when creator God is challenged by his creation. Verses 1 through 6. Now the servant was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Crafty. Remember that word. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Was God cruel in his restriction? This is a fundamental theological question that the answer may be easier than the reality for us. So was God cruel? Instantly your reaction is what? No, he wasn't cruel. Why was God not cruel? That's a harder answer. When you tell your children, don't eat that cookie until after supper, is that cruel? Kind of, but not really. Yes, it's cruel for the kid being told no, no matter his age. But why is it not cruel? I mean, seriously, is there anything ethically wrong with a cookie? Is there anything morally wrong with eating a cookie at two in the afternoon? Okay, all right. There's a medical reason, but let's dismiss that. Is there anything morally wrong with eating a cookie at two in the afternoon? And parenthetically, I pray it's not. Okay, so then what's the issue with why we think restriction is cruel? Comes back to ownership. Remember what we talked about last week. Does the creator have the right to tell its creation what it can and cannot do? If we have this moral discussion, remember all theology is founded in these 11 chapters. Is God cruel when he restricts us? We'll say, no, we're in church. No, of course, nothing God can't do bad. But why isn't it cruel to restrict somebody? When you're A, the creator, and B, you've proven that what you're choosing is in the best interest of all involved. So, moms and dads in the room, Have you ever been depicted as cruel by your children for choosing what's best for them over what they wanted? Absolutely. If you've ever parented, you are. But do you know more than they do? Do you have the right with the wisdom and experience of your life to be able to say that's not good? You know, one cookie at two won't kill you. Three cookies at two, that might start you on an addiction. So you say, no, it's not good for you. Well, what's wrong with the cookie? It's authority. And so what God has the right to do is tell us yes or no. But what we struggle with is if God simply says, like my father used to say, because I'm your dad, that's not very motivating. Factually, yes, dad, you got it all figured out. You brought me into this world. I didn't vote on this. I showed up. You're my dad. But when my dad says, but I love you, but I care for you, but I have what's best at your heart for you, then it's not about him being just my creator, it's about him being my loving father. Do you see the difference? All sin from this moment through the end of the Bible and into our age is predicated not just on God's right as creator. It's on whether or not we believe that he's a good father and he actually loves us. Does that maybe explain why some of the people we love who don't love God have a trouble with obedience? Is that why we're having a debate today about whether the commands of God should still apply? The answer is not because he created us. Our difficulty is because we're not sure he can be trusted. So when I told you to remember what word when we read about Satan, what was the word? Crafty. In other words, I want to tell you this. I don't know if intelligence is an adequate word. Michael can correct it when he hears this if he doesn't like it. Let me just put it in simple terms. Satan's not stupid. He's crafty. So what he does is he doesn't ask you to do something so audacious that you know it's wrong. He just simply begins to drop doubt in your mind as to whether or not you clearly understood what God meant. Or maybe we've always thought it was this way, but now more enlightened people are telling us, well, God didn't really mean you couldn't eat the fruit. What he really wanted to do is, you know, because if you eat it, you're going to know good and evil. And what do we call that? Crafty. I know I'm playing the parental card here, but did you ever have your your young people, your, your kids come home with a friend and you found that friend crafty? And you thought for a moment, looking at this young lady who hung out with your daughter or this guy that's hanging out with your son, and you're thinking, oh, he's going to get them in trouble. You know, if I can go to an old reference, an Eddie Haskell type personality that shows up in your house and you're like, oh, dude, I wouldn't trust you farther than (laughs) this far. 
Well, Satan's crafty because Satan knew that you can't just go out and say God's not good. So if you raise the question, what, what do you do when God doesn't seem good? Or when you're not sure God is good? And all of a sudden, he begins to capture our imagination. So let me give a clarification here. Satan is not mentioned in Genesis 3. Have you ever noticed that? The serpent's not called Satan. In fact, I don't believe there's any reference in the Old Testament that Satan is called a serpent. So like the apple, how did we come to believe that Satan is the serpent? Well, if that question interests you at all, I want you to write down two texts. Write down 2 Corinthians 11.3. Well, actually, I'm going to give you three. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Revelation 12.9, and Revelation 20, verse 2. So what's interesting is, Satan is not identified as a serpent until the New Testament. Do you remember the pre-echoes we talked about in week two? There are things that show up in Genesis that are made clearer later in the Bible. The New Testament writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, made the connection that whether Satan, I don't believe they're saying Satan was the serpent, but Satan inhabited the serpent and spoke. Now, some people get weirded out. Is it truly possible that a, a snake could speak? A donkey did? That's a good answer. (laughs) See, you have to ponder this because some people say, see, it's just mythology. This is just a a tale retold. Michael talked about that uh, two weeks ago when he talked about the imagery used in Scripture and how we try to modernize it today and struggle with it. Well, let's go. Satan attacks mankind's trust in God. First of all, he's called the father of lies. In Revelation 12, 9, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. In John chapter 8, Jesus called him the father of lies and said that lying is his native language. All right, I've asked you about your kids. Now let me talk to you about you. When you lied to somebody in your life, and I know I may be offending those of you who have never lied, but I'm going to have trouble believing that. Because we're sinful and we know how to cover our own hind ends, When you lied, was your lie so completely outside of the realm of possibility? Or did you lie as close to the truth as possible so it could be believed? Yeah, you stay right near it. Well, what's interesting here is it says he's crafty, he's the father of lies, and lying is his native language. But he's not going to lie in such a way it's unbelievable. He's going to lie in such a way that causes you to doubt. All right? So how does Satan craft his lie? First thing is, Satan wants to confuse us. Now, you can take this from the the scenery. There may be some who are listening to me who don't believe this literally happened. You think it's figurative language to depict the the battle versus good and evil. At this point in time, we'll we'll talk about that another day. At this point in time, either position you take, I'm still going to make the point. If this is allegorical or actual... Because there are some that aren't going to agree on that in this room. It doesn't matter to this point. He confuses us. The attempt is, listen to what was said in verse three or chapter 3, verse 1. Indeed, has God said? Translating that out. Are you sure that's what God said? Eve had a perfectly clear commandment from God, but the serpent planted seeds of doubt in her mind, and he does the same in ours. And our country is basking right now in this doubt. They are questioning everything as if no one has ever proceeded, which makes me smile intellectually inside. Because in no other discipline in all of the world could a belief be held for 2,000 years and some egghead in 1989 is smarter than anyone who's ever preceded him and we follow the egghead. There's no other discipline academically that that would be acceptable. Unless it can be mathematically proven But for thousands of years, starting with the eyewitnesses, we believed in the resurrection of Jesus, and we've got people today who are explaining that away, and the world's going, oh yeah, the new guy's right. It's ridiculous. So what has it done? It's just showing the confusion. If I can get you to doubt that God meant what he said, or if I can get you to not even know what he said, 
Have I accomplished the evil that changed everything? Yeah. Satan did not deny that God had spoken. He simply suggested that you can question God's goodness. Second thing, he made a caricature of God. He took God and he lowered him down. Or there was an expression in the late 70s when Christian music started hitting more than the Imperials. Oh, that was a reference, most missed. But anyway, back when Christian music became something that was actually Keith Green and Don Francisco and some of the early pioneers in the late 70s of Christian music, back in that day there was an expression that popped out saying, don't put God in a box. And we hear that all the time. It's exactly what Satan does here. He says, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? If I can depict this in a, in a verbal style, this is what we do with one another when you call your friend and say, hey, you want to go out tonight? Let's go out to Taco Bell and let's just run up and down the roads and see who's out there. And your friend goes, my mom says, I can't. She says, I can't even leave the house. That's exactly what Satan did here. Oh, so God said you can't even like have anything. And is that what he said? No, but once again, what's the depiction? You can't trust God. There's an ulterior motive. He's given you all this because he wants to dominate you. And you ought to know better. He takes one small restriction, placed upon us for our own good, and makes it out that God's keeping something back from us. And if you don't think that that is the sexual debate of our age, you're not paying attention. How dare God tell us that we can't find sexual satisfaction however we want? Theologically, everything we need to know is found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis about theology. Thirdly, he salves our conscience. So he puts his salve on it, right? Just makes it good. When I was a little, my uh, grandmother here in Missouri had this stuff called bag balm. I don't know what it was, but it was like, it was witchcraft. I mean, she would put that on anything. You'd cut your arm off. She'd put bag balm on it. It would be perfect in the morning. Stuff was amazing. You'd step on a nail in the barn, bag balm. Your lips were chapped, bag balm. You couldn't sleep at night, bag balm. It's a salve. So, salve our consciences. Satan says, if you do this, if you disobey God, you will surely not die. Fourth thing, he beautifies sin. He beautifies sin. I'm scared to death. I'm going to sound like the old get off my lawn guy. And, and I don't say this like I'm proud of it, but I've experienced enough of the world that when something horrifies me on television anymore, I'm stunned that it could be that dark. But look what's on television from 7 o'clock and on. Recently, someone sent me a clip of a Jeopardy question that was so full of innuendo. What is happening to us? It's, we're beautifying sin. Let's be so open-minded, nothing stays inside our minds. It just all falls out. This is what Satan did. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Let's, let's fact check here. That seems to be an expression through the last couple of weeks, isn't it? Let's fact check. When they ate of it, were their eyes opened? Yes. And you will be like God. Fact check. No. But he says you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Fact check. Yes. Sometimes Satan doesn't lie. But what's interesting is they understood good. But when they ate of the fruit, what did they understand for the very first time? Evil. Do you remember the last verse of chapter 2? They were naked and unashamed. What happens the moment their eyes were opened? Everything. They were separated from each other. They hid their bodies. They were separated from God. They hid in the bushes. They were separated from the animals. They actually had to kill an animal to get covering for themselves. The first murder. Were their eyes open to what's good and evil? They had no idea what evil was. And Satan got them caught in it. You see, Satan overpromises and always underdelivers. He overpromises happiness, satisfaction, and independence. And when you get into it, instead of having those three things, you get bondage. If you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that Edwin, what does he do? He eats the Turkish delight because he believes it's going to satisfy him. And what does it do? It only creates an increasing hunger that he can't ever satiate. 
Under, over promises, under delivers. He says, go ahead and separate. Go ahead and separate from God. What they realized was they, when they separated from God, they separated from everything else. Adam and Eve were already made in the image of God. They needed nothing more. And Satan tempted them with an even greater privilege to be God. Romans one twenty five. For they exchanged the truth of a lie or truth of God for a lie. Now in Romans one twenty five it says the truth of God for a lie. The literal translation of that text. Michael talked about it uh, in our Roman series. The literal translation of that text is they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Not just a lie, but the ultimate lie that we can be equal with God. And the reason he suppresses our independence is he's fearful that we'll take over. Now, stop and go back to who you know God to be. Do you think he spends one second in all of eternity worried that we might get him? (laughs) It's like the little kid who finally challenges dad, come on, we're wrestling, I'm going to pin you. And the dad smiles and goes, oh, we're going to play with this for a while. My dad used to pin us down. There were three of us older ones. And he'd get, I don't know how he did it. He was kind of like Spider-Man, but he'd get all three of us on the ground. And while laying across us, holding us down while we squealed, he would pop our toes. You ever had your toes pop or the knuckle pop? And talk about screaming for the love of God and mercy. He would just laugh and hold us down. And he'd sit on the couch and one of my brothers, and it may have been me too, would go, come on, old man. And here we went again and again and again. And Satan says, no, no, no. If you guys all pack together, we're going to get to Genesis 11 eventually. If you all get together, God's going to be nervous. Well, why would Satan know that's not true? Because where was he before he was kicked out? In the presence of God. And what did he try to do? Overthrow God. Was there a battle? No. At the, book, at the end of Revelation, is there going to be a great battle between Satan's forces and God's forces? No. God's going to show up. Satan's out of the pool. It's over. He gets thrown in a hole, never to be heard from again, destroyed forever. So the lie, not just a lie, the lie. Let's look at what Eve did here. Eve abandoned her trust with pride. First of all, she took away from God's word. If you'll, if Genesis 2.16, if you'll take a peek at that, God said from any tree of the garden you may eat, Genesis 2.15, or 2.16, from any tree of the garden you may eat what? Freely. That's kind of interesting. You may eat freely. I read a story one time, I wish I would have kept it. It made an indelible mark in my mind, but the details of it were sketchy, so I just... Throw it out there. It's a true story because it was in Reader's Digest, and that's as good as the Bible in my world. But there's a story about a, a, a boy who was taken in as a, to a family as an or- orphan. He was adopted into their family, and they found out at dinner time he wasn't eating very much. And then when he got up from the table, they heard as he walked like the crunching of plastic. And what they'd realized is while they were getting the meal prepared, he'd stepped into the pantry and loaded his pockets full of cracker packets. And the mother watched him go in the bedroom and she heard him unloading the packets. And when she opened the door, he was shoving them inside the pillowcase. And she said he must have had 20 or 25 packets of crackers. And then it finally dawned on her. He didn't realize that everything in that pantry was his. He thought that if he didn't protect it, one day, like everything else in his life, it was going to be stopped, right? So she said in this story, this beautiful story, she said the, the husband and and wife took him in there and said, you can have anything you want. And he, w- he didn't know what that meant. So he said he wanted that. And it was like a can of cherry pie filling. And she went and opened the can of cherry pie filling, which like a good mother should, poured it in a bowl and gave him a spoon. <laughs> it's my kind of mom. And she said the little boy took a bite, but he was watching him the whole time, expecting him to pull the bowl back. Everything in that pantry was freely given. Are you with me? Who paid for it? Mom and dad. Who did they buy it for? The the child. When God created this world, who did he create it for? When he said, I'm freely giving you this, what did she do? She omitted the word. She felt restricted. Why can't I have it all? Because what did God say? God did the one thing that tests our trust. 
I'm going to ask you not to do this. Second thing, she added to the word of God. This is where she got that little bit snotty. Nowhere did God say or touch it. Can't even go near it. Can't even say its name. (laughs) I didn't say that. God's like, the whole pantry is yours, but stay away from the peas. That's a loving father. 1 John 5, 3, Jesus said his commandments are not burden, or John says his commandments are not burdensome. I said it Sunday a couple of times. It wasn't in my nose, but it kind of flew out of my mouth, and I liked it after I said it. Jesus is not a tyrant. He doesn't make us do anything we don't want to do. But he offers us life if we'll choose to obey him. Because life is found in our obedience. Not because we obeyed, it's found within our obedience. Next, she changed God's word. She says in chapter 3, God says if we eat of it, you know, don't touch it or do anything with it lest you die. Like there's a chance you might die. If you look back with me at Genesis 2.17 in your Bibles, how does God pose that proposition? She says, if I do, I might die. God says, if you do, you're dead. And it wasn't just physical death. It was the death of everything that was good in the garden. So if you're, if you're pausing, and I hope at this moment you're stopping going, okay, 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 he likes Genesis 3. Now I need you to understand that every time we have a tree in our life that we want to take the fruit from, that God's told us not to eat, every time we do, it is not about touching the fruit. It's not about getting close to the fruit. It's not about sitting in the shade of the fruit tree. It's about the fact when we walk toward the tree, we're saying with every fiber of our being, God can't be trusted. But the person who trusts God can sit under that tree for the rest of their lives and worship. The tree's not the evil. The tree symbolizes obedience and whether or not we believe that God can be trusted. So let's go to point two tonight. Sin creates some unnatural results. Remember, let's go back to those six things we reviewed about the characteristics of ourselves, of mankind rather. First of all, sin creates shame. Sin creates shame. Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This has nothing to do with theology. Just an observation from studying Genesis a few times in my life. Fig leaves. Why? How do they know to do that? How do they know to sew? So if you're picturing cavemen with their knuckles dragging on the ground who couldn't speak and all they did was grunt, hit each other with clubs, that's not who we're talking about here, are we? They had natural creativity. They never wore clothes before and they created clothing. It is so important for me, for us to understand, God did not create seminal man as some beast who needed refining over time. We were created as rational, moral, practical beings. And it's demonstrated even after our sin. That that's what we've been and that's what we'll continue to be. In fact, they didn't become God. In fact, they became less like God than they'd ever been in their entire lives. Trust was gone, innocence was gone, intimacy would have to, be, to overcome suspicion. They were filled with shame and they covered themselves. Secondly, sin creates fear. This affects the relational component of who we are. It creates fear. Genesis 3, 8 through 10. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Pause there for a moment. Did God not know? And I know I've tried to be cute tonight to see if you're with me. I want you to ponder that, though. Did God really not know where they were? 
You ever play hide and seek with a two-year-old? And all you got to do is look for the diaper sticking out behind the plant. <laughs> like, okay, that's not normal. And you realize, so was God really fooled? When you ask, where are you? Oh, let me pose it this way. Maybe this fits better the room. Ladies, you ever been in a vehicle or sitting at the house with your husband or boyfriend and you're trying to have a conversation and they're kind of looking out the window and you ask the question, where are you right now? Oh, no, no, you asked the question, what are you thinking? It's the same question, isn't it? You're physically here, but you're not. Your mind's somewhere else, you're preoccupied, sports center's on, something's happening in the world that's got you distracted. I believe when God asks the question, where are you? He's saying, normally when I came into the garden, what would they do? Yeah. Verse 10. He answered, I heard you in the garden. Adam answered. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. <laughs> this, okay, for the record, as much as I joke around about the kind of father I am, uh, my oldest son, Alex, was never spanked one time in his entire life. He was just too easy. One time, I had to slap his hand when he was reaching for the stove. It only took one slap on his hand. He pulled it back, got red-faced and gave me the look and walked away. That's the most physical discipline I've ever had for him. We were joking around at dinner one time, and (laughs) he was sitting to my right, a little tiny round table. Heather was across from me, and I reached to grab the ketchup. I was playing with him and joking with him. We were back and forth, and I went to get the ketchup, and my precious child went, ooh, and I thought, What? I have never struck you. I've never reached for you. I mean, I patted him on the back of the head when he was being a knucklehead, but it was all in good nature. And he flinched. It broke my heart. He thought I was going to hit him. And I was like, where did that come from? He goes, I don't know. I was like, does your mother hit you when I'm gone? Anyway, so, anyway. He said no, but there was suspicion. How do you think it felt when God said, why would you hide from me? Do you, do you feel it? Is this a God who's ticked, or is this a God who's going, I know what you did, and look what it did to us? How does that matter to us today? How about this? When you sin, do you have a God in heaven going, not again? Because a lot of us believe that's God. We've been taught that that's God. Fire and brimstone. Fear hell, people. Fear hell. Really? Because a fearing jail stopped crime it would have stopped. And if fearing hell stopped sin, we wouldn't need a savior. So what happens is, I don't have a God in heaven who looks at me anymore and goes, not again. That's the 90th time, Mark. When are you ever going to stop? Now I have a God who says, Mark, why do you keep going away from me? What do I have to do to prove to you how much I love you? So if we think, I don't know if you ever heard this, But all of our theology is found in these introductory chapters to our Bibles. There's a depth there. Thirdly, sin produces blame. This is where Genesis gets a little funny. This is sitcom. This is Ricky and Lucy. And he said, God, capital H, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Once again, he's a good dad because he's asking questions. He already has the answers. The man said, (laughs) the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So what did they just do? Excuses, excuses, excuses. He blames her, she blames the the serpent. And what's God's response to the reasons for why we sinned? It's blame shifting. Okay, I, I didn't think I would do that this much tonight, but they just keep popping in my head. You walk into your family room and your children have friends over and there's a lamp laying on the middle of the floor broken. What, what authority and responsibility do you have over the guest children in your home? You can ask them to what? 
leave? What responsibility do you have to the DNA that you named? A whole lot more. So when the boys mess around the house and they break something, Alex Christian is responsible for all nine of them. Braden Christian's responsible for the boys hanging out. If Cody Herndon's in my house with Braden Christian, I'm going to look at Cody and go, pal, it's time to go home. And Braden will begin to pray. Because who has responsibility in our house? My son. Does God respond at all to their blame shifting? No, we'll find out in a little bit he doesn't at all. What do we learn from that? If someone hands you forbidden fruit, they didn't make you bite it. All they did was offer it to you. And God totally ignores the excuses given for our sin. If you would have been in a condition I've been in, if you'd have been as lonely as I was, if you'd have been this and been this, and all of those reasons, are, they make sense. But does that excuse disobedience? Absolutely not. Third, let's look at the third principle from this chapter. Sin curses all creation. The reason I can tell you that the blame shifting doesn't work is because look at what God does to all three participants in the disobedience. There's a curse on the tempter. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and strike your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The serpent approached the woman. The woman approached the man. Then God said to both of them. But I want you to notice, notice that God reverses the order here. God does not ask the serpent why he did it. Why did he not ask the serpent why he did it? What's the simple answer? Because he knew. What did he know? That Satan was striking back at God by bringing evil into his creation. Remember our discussion on, on free will last week? I told you that if, if you thought through it with me this week, it would make sense tonight. And the question's been raised a few times. Did God create evil? What's your answer? That's correct. How many of you thought yes? I do. And that's correct too. The answer is yes and no. Well, how can it be yes and no? Because when God gave you and I the right to choose to obey him, what was naturally created? The right not to. And we are moral creatures. We know from the very beginning, don't touch that cookie. Why? Because mama said, don't touch the cookie, but I want the cookie. So I have to choose. Do I do what I want or do I do what mama wants? And so that cookie is the trigger. And every time you're told to do, you can choose not to do. And every time you chose not to do, you can choose do. Did God create evil? It's a sticky question. But the answer is, evil became present when God created free will. Now, was it a risk for God to create free will? Or could he have just created Brady Bunch kids who live the rest of their lives just being awesome? Yeah, but what can't robotic people do? They can't love. And they can't obey by definition. Robots can't obey. They don't know to do anything but one thing. But real love comes. That's what marriage is a beautiful thing. It's two people who choose each other, who they know they're going to irritate each other, and they know they're so different that it's going to be a fight to love each other through the differences. In a culture that says, no, no, as soon as it doesn't feel good, just bolt. Love says, no, no, I'm going to love you anyway. And by love, we're going to overcome these things because of what we do when we choose to love one another. So when God created love and he created free will, evil had to be, by necessity, there. Now, what that does to us theologically is it causes some of us to get angry. And I don't mean like an unintelligent anger. But you stop and say, why did God give us so much free will? Because the benefit of that is free love. 
So when I stand down here on a Saturday afternoon and those doors open and I'm standing next to a nervous gentleman and she starts walking down the aisle, I know what he's thinking every time. She's actually going to do this. And if she got right there and I said, who gives this man to this or woman to this man to take as his wife and she runs down the aisle, then he's going to go, ah, so close. Because a wedding is not the ceremony of vows. The wedding is that that girl and that guy made a choice. And what was their choice? The greatest thing anyone's ever done for me on the human level is when Heather decided to journey with this guy. Because she didn't have to. She chose to. But if all of a sudden we had been just, and I'm going to make a cultural reference here, if she'd have been assigned to me because our parents liked each other, been really tough to be emotional down here. It would be more like, who are you? Oh my goodness. Make sense? So, did God create evil? By the natural process of what he created, evil was present. Did God create evil knowing, or free will knowing, that evil would exist and that we probably wouldn't handle it very well? Yes. And that's where we'll get here in just a moment. So God had already put a remedy to the tragedy. Listen to what it says with me. Just You have to know Genesis 3, 14 through 15. Verse 15 is one of the most crucial pre-Messianic statements. So I will put enmity. What's the word enmity? Anybody have a different translation in front of them? War? Hostility? Hostility? He said, I'm going to divide you and the woman. I'm going to take her from you. I'm going to get her back. And I'm going to put her at odds with you, Satan. And between your offspring and hers, well, I want you to understand this theologically. When he says hers, what's he talking about ultimately? The church. Believers, followers of Christ, disciples. Not the brand name of those churches. The church is hers. And he will crush your head and you, and you will strike his heel. So God comes in and he goes, you think you messed this up? I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to win her back and her people are going to follow me and they are going to crush you. And yes, you will bite her son, but he'll live. How many of you saw Mel Gibson's The Passion? I don't normally recommend movies because I hardly can remember what I saw when I was there. I'll never forget. There's three movies in my life I know that I never need to see again because I haven't forgotten them. Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, and The Passion. And that moment in the garden where that white nasty snake is coming toward Jesus and you're thinking, oh no, it's bad enough. And all of a sudden that heel comes down and goes, boom! And the whole theater went, ah! It was cracked me up in that movie. I went to see it at the theater because everyone said, you got to see it in the theater, not at home. So I went to the theater. This dude comes and sits next to me. God is my witness. He had like a 10-gallon thing of popcorn. (laughs) Dude, you brought popcorn to watch Jesus brutalized? I need to pray for him. And he sat next to me. And when that foot came down and that serpent's head, he wore his popcorn. And I was like, you're awesome. (laughs) Dude, you're eating during the passion. Sad. But I love what Mel Gibson had a vision for from this text. He will crush your head. And that's exactly what happened in that scene. When that foot came down, it was, it was hard to smile in that film. But there was a moment I was reminded of, yes, this is horrible. But it gets better. So God came in. Instead of a God who walked into the garden and said, you did what? His first statement was, why have you drawn away from me? He looked at Satan, he said, I know what you did, and you're going to lose everything you've gained. He looked at her and he said, I know what you've done, and this, the penalty is going to be your life just became hard. And you're going to produce offspring. And instead of offspring being an easy thing, you're going to struggle in childbirth. He looked at Adam and Eve and he said, and what you two have done, and not doing the right thing together, I'm going to put a thing between you that's going to be hard. And he said to Eve, you're going to serve him. Can you see, I know you guys think I'm being sarcastic now, can you see how the battle for the home 
the origination of the problem between marriage, between men and women, submission and love and respect, Ephesians, Colossians, the passage in the Bible about marriage, can you see that it's all birthed from these moments in Genesis when our disobedience, God said the consequences of your choice are gonna be, life's gonna be a lot harder because of what you've done to yourselves. But here's the good news. The gospel is first taught in Genesis 3.15. He said, but I'm gonna bring one who's gonna reverse the whole thing. Now, so when someone tells you that God's in heaven picking off the people that aren't doing exactly what he wants them to do, that we have a God who sends down things like AIDS, or we have a God who sends tornadoes and hurricanes and blizzards to punish people for their sin, I want you to go back to Genesis 3 and say, is that how God acted when Adam and Eve rebelled? Did he send storms in and diseases on them? Nah, they got mosquitoes and weeds. He's still gracious, though, isn't he, in his, in his discipline? I want you to remember the theology of who God is. This is why we're studying this. Romans 16.20. In Romans 16.20, see if if this sounds familiar to something we studied. Paul wrote, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What's Paul doing there? He's reminding the church. Genesis 3.15 is real. There was a curse for the woman. Genesis 3.16. And I know, okay, <laughs> my tail's wagging. I got a minute to do this. You all know, right, that the chapters and verses in your Bible were added in about the 16th century. 16th, 17th century, those were added. There was a way to index it. You had these large books and people were trying to remember where they read that passage. So the scholars got together and they indexed the Bible. They made chapters and verses to the best of their ability. So there's no inspiration in the chapters and verses. But if you want to do something fascinating, take your Bible sometime. Maybe you're sitting in an airplane or you're waiting at the doctor's office. Pull out the app on your, on your phone and look at the Bible and go to every chapter 3, verse 16 that has one. Some of the most powerful verses in the Bible are found in the third chapter, 16th verse. We all know John three sixteen. There are some pretty powerful things. Now, how did that happen? I don't know. But I look at it and I go, it's kind of interesting to think that maybe God might have even worked on those people who numbered things. Curse for the woman. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing and with pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. We don't even have to explain that, do we? The great pain of childbirth. And yet, where is it in the New Testament that it says that even through, and I'm going to paraphrase, that even through the grieving of childbearing, when the child's born, the pain is soon forgotten. I heard a comedian say something so true. He said, men could give birth, but they'd only do it once. And I thought that's absolutely correct. (laughs) Just to prove they could, the second child would be going, no, you women are like, no, I love them enough, I'll have more. But the curse, it is a curse, right? that this child-rearing would be with great difficulty and great pain. My dad's a farm boy. I mention that a lot. The first time our uh, neighbor's dog had puppies, we knew we were going to get one of the puppies. And my dad's penalty for us to get a puppy, because we found out he knew he'd do all the work, was we had, to watch it, we had to watch it give birth, the mother give birth. So here I remember it. We moved from that house when I was in fifth grade, so I was probably second or third grade. It was the most horrific thing I'd ever seen in my life because the mom started whipping around the yelping and screaming and just babies flying everywhere. I didn't want to touch a dog for nine years. I was like, what just happened? You know which dog we picked? The one who rolled up on my dad's leg. That's the dog I had for nine years. That dog rolled over, landed on my dad's. My dad picked it up, handed it. He marked it. We went and got that dog about about four, six, I guess it was about eight weeks later. We got that puppy. But I watched that childbirth, and I just looked at my mom with absolute respect. (laughs) Because in a second grader's mind, how was I born? She ran around the hospital, and I just fell out. I thought, that woman's a superhero. There's a curse for the man. That's your next blank. A curse for the man. Verses 17 through 19. 
Now, if you look at the mere volume, okay, Satan gets two verses. Eve gets one verse. Adam gets three verses. I don't know if that's significant, but the amount of text indicates that ultimately who abdicated his responsibility? Adam did. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Could you paraphrase possibly what, what ultimately, I mean, an essay question for this particular, these three verses would be, take these three verses and tell me in one sentence what God is saying to him from a 30,000 foot view. What is God saying to Adam? You ruined paradise. Everything I gave you Morally, socially, practically, all six things, all of them have been stripped of their beauty. All of them have been stripped of their purity. Paradise is no longer. And so everything I gave you for you to enjoy, you will enjoy it at cost. Mothers, you will give birth, but it'll be hard. Men, you'll work, but the earth is going to fight you. The earth is going to push back. It's not going to just roll over. That's why it says the earth is groaning for the return of its creator. Can you see the beauty of all of this? Why is life hard? Life's hard because sin has corrupted everything God gave us, which was good. So now you might know, and and I believe most people will, will catch on to it. But this is why I struggle so much. When you can get on television or radio... And you can hear someone who says they're proclaiming the gospel and they're telling you that you should never have any problem, any strife, or any trouble. My theology, founded in Genesis, says that's a lie. It's not just half the gospel. It's a lie. Satan is crafty. So what he does is he offers us something really close to the truth, but it's not true. And it scares me that one of the largest congregations in our country hear all the time that if you have enough faith, you'll never suffer. That I believe God owes Jesus an apology because he was the suffering servant. And I think he had faith, don't you? To go through what he did, was he lacking anything? No, so we, I'm not saying that I want us to suffer. I'm telling you, if you don't prepare for it, it will wipe you out when it happens. Life is hard. Things don't go the way we want them to go. People we love die. Christians get cancer. Christians go bankrupt and lose everything. Christians, Christians are punished for breaking the law. Even though they're saved, there's still consequences. Adam's sinful legacy becomes quite obvious when we turn the page to Genesis 4, and we'll get there in the next week or so. Because in Genesis 4, they have two sons. Well, they have at least two sons. That's something you want to clarify. Just because it said they had two sons named Cain and Abel, that's mentioned to take you to the story of Cain and Abel. But that doesn't mean that's the only children they had. What was one of the commands they were given? So if you're going to populate the earth and you have two sons, I did well enough in biology to know you can't keep the promise. So they had lots of kids. Like a reality TV show, lots of kids. And these were just two of them. But what happened? You have two boys that are completely different. One respects God and loves God and trusts God and sacrifices to God, and God knows it's a real sacrifice. The other is taking shortcuts, and he's not sure he can trust God. And when God says your sacrifice doesn't indicate trust, what's his response? Sorrow and repentance? No, it's fury and anger. God can't be trusted, and how dare God punish me? So you can see that Adam and Eve's sin bears out. And then just a little hint, 
when you get to Genesis chapter 5, there's a reoccurring phrase for the first time in the Bible, reoccurring like every other verse at least. And here's the two wo- or three words, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. See, that was never mentioned in paradise. Death wasn't a thing. But because of this, there was a punishment. And men began, began to die. There was a curse for society, for all of society, which is the next blank you have to fill in. A curse for all society, verses 20 and 21, and then we'll read 23 and 24. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That is really... This hit me the other day studying for this. And this this may be me being a bit sentimental because I want to fight for the truth of God. Will God bring wrath in in his righteous timing? Absolutely. How do I know that? Because he said it. The Bible says that God won't be patient with us forever. There will come a moment where he will, he will demand an exacting accountability for what he's offered us. But I also think that we've forgotten the loving God. We've made Jesus into this warm teddy bear who's just going to hug everybody. But I want you to know the love of God has a warmth to it that draws us in. So he comes down and they've made clothes out of leaves. And when God sees that, what does he choose to do? He introduces them to leather. That's a pretty good gig, isn't it? I mean, how would you like to come to church in, sun, in, in fig leaves and sit on branches? Ever heard of the rash? Would you, would you fear the breeze? How long would your clothes last? You wouldn't go to the mall, I promise you that. So what did God do? God sacrificed a beautiful part of his creation to take care of his most special creation, man. So animals died, whether they were made of wool or lambskin. I don't know what he made it of. But it says here that he made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Down to verse 23. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he... What? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Can you remember last week Something I mentioned, and I'm not saying you remember everything I say, but I want to see if this connects. Adam was created, now think with me carefully, Adam was created where on earth? Pardon? Somewhere else, good. How do we know that? Because it says after he created him, he placed him in the garden. Upon his sin, what happened? He removed him from the garden. Do you see the picture in Revelation of the new kingdom coming down in the perfect shape of the holy place, perfectly square, and it comes down and it establishes a new heaven and a new earth, and then what does the scriptures tell us will happen? We will be placed from the broken world back into paradise. Can you see the three gardens again? You know, I'm beginning to think that all of our theology can be found in Genesis if we just pay attention, especially about sin, about God's plan to redeem it. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken, and he drove that man out. He placed, him, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The eastern gate into Jerusalem For those of you interested in going on that trip to Israel, I want to tell you when we get there and we'll show you the eastern side of the city, you're going to see things engraved on the walls. Can you imagine what they are? Cherubim and seraphim. To remind us that there is a better place that God has prepared for us that's being guarded right now until that perfect day that the Jews believe Jesus will come and set his foot down on Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is Jerusalem. And Jesus will put his foot on that mountain. And there's some imagery about all the mountains flattening out and the entire earth being just one holy place because it's craters back. Sounds like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Man will be placed inside of that. So Genesis isn't all gloomy. Genesis 3 is startling. 
not only for what we do when we choose to sin, but it should be startling for God's reaction to our sin. So here's a couple of uh, fill-in-the-blank questions. Either true or false. Does God punish sin immediately? Sometimes. Does God punish sin eternally? Sometimes. Does God work with us in our sin to cover our shame and redeem us? All the time. So what's the difference between those living in shame and those living in freedom and forgiveness? The covering. So when mankind sinned and their soul needed saved, God couldn't carve up an animal to cover the flesh. So what did he do? He sent his son to die on the cross so that the blood of the perfect lamb, animal. That's why some scholars, when you read it, they'll tell you that they believe that God took a lamb and provided the skin for Adam and Eve from a lamb. Because it sure would make a whole lot of sense when he took the blood of the lamb that he killed to, to cover their physical shame to also cover their spiritual shame. Sounds just beautiful and poetic. I'd like you to do something. I don't do this very often, but I think I treat you like you're me, which is offensive to most of you, but here's why. I'm easily distracted. I know it's late and I'm just about done here and we need to be done. Just close your eyes, get comfortable, and allow these words I'm about to read over you to just remember the joy that can be found in Genesis 3 if we understand it well. This is Paul writing to you and me. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the question I close with tonight is, can the God who came in the form of Jesus Christ be trusted? And that will set your theology for why we don't sin and why we trust. Thank you. You all are dismissed. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.